Awesome. All right, let me pray. Uh, Father, thank you that we, uh, we still can gather even last week as we looked at the importance of community and being together as the church, as brothers and sisters. I just pray, Spirit, that again today you would use this time to impress your word into our heart. I pray that we would come away uh, this morning more alive than how we came. I pray that you would breathe new life into us. I pray that you would renew hearts and minds and that we would come away with just more vitality and more life in you, Jesus, and, and more excitement about the gospel and our call to live in light of it. So we love you and we need you and we ask that you would enter into this time with us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Um, So today we're going to finish our series recalculating and we're going to look at something very specific. We're going to look at revival. We're going to look at revival. Now, when you hear the word revival, what immediately comes to mind? What's something you think about when you hear the word revival? Uh, some of us might just think like sweaty tent meetings, right, in the South. Some, some hot tent meetings where evangelism is happening and people are, are, are doing something in particular. Others of us may think of a particular display of, of something external, something, uh, a display of the work of the spirit or the presence of God. Or, or maybe when you hear revival, you think about something that it's, well, it's, it's like what Pentecostals do, right? It's like the Pentecostals, they're the ones that have kind of the corner lot on revival. Or maybe you think about a particular revival from history. You think about something in the pages of history. And today what we're going to look at is we're going to understand what revival actually looks like internally in us and then externally in the work of Christ's church. Simply put, revival understood correctly is just a clear and unusual intrusion of God's presence and power on God's people. It's when God's people become fully alive. Not, not just sleepy, not, not just kind of meh, but, but fully alive in who God is and what God is up to. And when you survey history and you look at the revivals throughout history, because there, there are many, whether it's the, the Great Awakening, the first Great Awakening of the 1730s or the second Great Awakening of the 1820s or, or the Businessman Revival. That one was crazy in the 1850s where 475,000 people were added to the church in the United States because of a, a lunch Bible study started by some corporate business people. Or you look at some of the other revivals like the famous Welsh revival or the Indian revival or the North Korean revival of the early 1900s. Or you look at what's even happened in China over the last hundred years. All different contexts, all different time periods, but share some common similarities. They share some features and that's what we're going to look at today. Charles Finney the great Presbyterian preacher who saw the second great awakening happen in the 1820s. He said this about revival. Listen, revival is a renewed conviction of sin and repentance followed by an intense desire to live in obedience to God, an intense desire to live in obedience to God. It is giving up one's will to God in a deep humility. A revival is nothing else than a new beginning of obedience to God. Notice that he says it's an intense desire to live in obedience to God. Some of us are so intense about silliness, so intense about nonsense, so intense about things that don't matter. When revival happens in the church, when renewal happens in hearts, we become intense 
about living in obedience to God. An intense desire wells up in us. An intense desire turns us inward to one another in the church. And then that intense desire sends us out of the the four walls of the church into a culture that doesn't know this God. That's what revival does. That's what revival always does. And if you notice, it always starts inside the church. It starts in us. It starts right here. We don't have a fetish about talking about the world's sin. We, we, we talk about our own. We confess our own. We have an intense desire to obey God. The church starts to study. The church starts to pray. The church worships. The, the church preaches. The church repents. The, the church evangelizes. That's what revival looks like. And then that floods into our culture. It starts here. And then it floods out. And it changes cities. It changes nations. It changes generations. That's what we see throughout history. If there's anything that the revivals show us, it's that. And it's not foreign to the Bible. (laughs) Revival is all over the place in scripture. Psalm 85, six, the psalmist cries out and says, will you not revive us again, starting with us, that your people may celebrate you? Psalm 80, verse 18, give us life so that we will call on your name. Habakkuk 3.2, oh Lord, I have heard the report of you. We've heard about you and we've heard about your work, but in the midst of these years, revive it. In Hebrew, this word for revive, for renewal, for bringing to life is, is wake up. It's a renewed, it's fully alive, fully aware, conscious, fully, fully living a life that is revived, it's renewed. And honestly, church, my deepest desire and prayer for not just our church, but the church in Montreal and in our province of Quebec and in the nation of Canada is this, it's this. And and if I'm honest, I'm I'm so tired. I'm I'm tired. I'm tired of playing church. I'm tired of arguing about nonsense. I'm tired of watching Christians focus on silliness and nonsense as as a generation heads into eternity without Christ. But we don't have to settle for this. And that's the good news. We don't have to settle for this. And now, while revival cannot be manufactured, we can't kind of conjure it up. There's a few things that I want us to see that common feature that are shared across every revival that we see in history and every revival that we see in the pages of scripture. Okay, three things. Number one, we see that revival is fully focused on Jesus being supreme, on Jesus being preeminent, on Jesus being front and center. And not just the what, not just kind of like, oh, it's, it's, it's about Jesus, here's what, what we talk about, but the why and, and the how. It's, it's all wrapped up in the preeminence and, and supreme position of Jesus. Watch Colossians 1, watch this. Verse 15 through 20, and here's what Paul's doing. Paul's unpacking the importance of the gospel throughout this whole passage. And he said, and he reminds them, he says like, like, hey, you've heard the gospel, right? You've heard the word of truth. You've heard the grace of God. And then he reminds them of this. This is the gospel, that he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation. And for by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is the head. He is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. And then he shifts from creation and then he applies this to the church and watch this. This is what we have to hear. And he, Jesus Christ, is the head of the body of the church. 
He's the beginning. He's the firstborn from the dead. That in everything, underline that, that in everything, he might be preeminent. For in him, Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to bring back to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Church, if Jesus isn't supreme in everything, I don't know what we're doing. He must be preeminent before everything, in everything and before all things. And often, if we're honest, Jesus is secondary and prominent, but he's not supreme and he's not preeminent. Because really, if I'm honest, it's my plans, it's my theological preferences and ideas, it's my budget, it's, it's our buildings, it's our politics, it's our comfort, it's our security, it's our money, it's our life, our cute little life, it's our career, it's, it's all of that. And then what we end up doing, church, is we invite Jesus into our heart and our life instead of laying our entire life down at his feet. You see, listen, every religion has a part of Jesus. Every philosophy of man wants a little bit of Jesus. Secondary Jesus, tertiary Jesus, right? Islam has Jesus as a prophet, but he definitely wasn't crucified. Buddhism has Jesus as kind of like one enlightened teacher that brings us to nirvana because God is everything and everything is God. Naturalism and atheism has no God or metaphysical reality at all. And science and reason, they're the arbiter of truth. And Jesus is a Jewish rabbi who died and stayed dead. Everyone has a secondary role for Jesus. But the church puts him preeminent. He's primary. He's in everything. He, everything that we do. That Jesus, the God-man, fully God, fully man, the image of the invisible God, crucified, died, and raised to, from the dead to, cruci- to, to reconcile all things to himself. That Jesus. Martin Lloyd-Jones, great Welsh preacher, he himself never saw revival, but he talked about it a ton and he prayed for it. He said this, revival is above anything else. It's a glorification of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the restoration of him to the center of the life of the church. And even over COVID, Jesus has not been at the center of the life of the church. Like our mission as the church is Christ's preeminence, where he is not known or named. And it starts with us, not out there, but in here. And revival happens when John 3.30 happens. He must increase, we must decrease. More of Jesus, less of me, less of you, less of our preferences, less of our perspectives, less of our comforts, less of our entertainment, less of our plans, and more of Jesus. So church, what about you? Like, like where is Jesus? Is Jesus first in everything? Have you surrendered everything? about your life to Jesus? Is he first over your job, over your marriage, over your kids, over your family, over your hobbies? Is he first over where you live and why you live there and and what you do with your time and the conversations that you have and and you're eating and you're playing? And is he first over what you decide to watch and what you don't? Is he first over your disappointments and your regrets? Is Is he first over what you do in the dark when no one else is watching? Have you surrendered everything? Have you surrendered all things to Jesus? All of your fears, all of your anger, all of your disappointment, all of your brokenness, all of your pain, your addiction that no one else knows about, your laziness that you think God just kind of like looks over and overlooks and allows. 
your sense of achievement, your time, your body, your sexuality? Is he Lord over it? Have you surrendered all things to him? Is he in everything and above everything? Is he, is he primary? Is he supreme? Is he preeminent? Church, if there's one thing I want you to do today is to give him everything. Right now, give him everything. Everything the world offers is so dim. It's so lame compared to him. He came to give life and to give it abundantly. And he wants to give that to you and he wants to give that to me and he wants to give that to the church so that then we can go out into a world that doesn't know him, that doesn't have him as primary. Do that now. Like stop now. Pray it now. Say it now. Jesus, I give you everything. I surrender everything to you. I want you to be supreme. I want you to be preeminent. Do it now. That's the first thing that we see in revival. It starts there. Always starts there. That's the beginning of it. That's the end of it. That's the why. That's the what. That's the how. It's, it's in Christ. Secondly, the second thing that we see, common feature in revival is we see an unquenchable, just insatiable hunger for God's word, for his word. And in Nehemiah, you can see it in Hezekiah, you can see it all over the place. Anytime you see kind of like a renewal of the church or the people of God in the Old or the New Testament. But in Nehemiah, Nehemiah is probably my favorite example. Where we see in Nehemiah that there's a revival of the people. There's a renewal of the people around what? Centered on what? Well, it's God's word. Watch this, a few verses from Nehemiah 8. And all the people gathered as one into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra, the people told Ezra, the scribe to bring the word of God, the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. And he read it from, from it, facing the square before the water gate and from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive. That word is given over to. They were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people, standing above them. And as he opened it, all the people stood. For five hours, they stood up. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, amen, amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. I love this picture. Because that's not, I mean, imagine, like, I, I don't think Ezra was really, I mean, I don't think Ezra was good at this. Like he wasn't preaching, he wasn't charismatic, didn't have a jean jacket on, didn't have a fog machine. He got up and he read the word of God for five hours. Like and everyone stood up. And notice who initiated this. This is what I love about this text. It's the people. The people say, hey, bring the word of God. Bring it to us, read it to us. Like the people come and say, okay, okay, can we study the Bible more? Can we have more Bible studies? Can you preach longer? Can, can we have classes on theology? This isn't a 45 minute sermon that we're just waiting to move on to the Super Bowl for. Think about what snack we're gonna have. When is Dustin gonna finish so I can just move on with my day? They're locked in, they're given over to the word of God. And from early morning to afternoon, no singing, no, no kind of stuff, no lunch break, no entertainment, just reading, just teaching, just understanding the word of God. And I love this text because they go on and they have like a small group discussion after. And there's all sorts of names. There's like 15 people mentioned that help people kind of get into small group discussion and just break down the word of God and apply it into their life. And they were attentive to it. They were given over to it. They were hungry for it. 
they wanted more. They had to tell the leadership to bring it more. Imagine that. They're not waiting to move on. They're not, not waiting to get back to Netflix. They're not thinking about what's, what's for lunch. They're not waiting to go sledding. They're, they're not sitting checking their phones. They're, they're not thinking about their schedule starting because Monday's coming. They're sitting. They're, they're fixated. They're locked in. They're hungry. They're thirsty because they know that that's where life comes from. Jonathan Edwards, in the first great awakening in the 1730s, one thing he noticed is he said they were so eager. The people were so eager to drink in God's word. So eager. Like they just couldn't wait. They were just like, like licking their lips, waiting just to, to get into God's word. Martin Lloyd-Jones, same thing. He said the constant preliminary to revival has always been a thirst for God. Like, like a living thirst for the knowledge of the living God. A burning desire to, to know him, to hear from him and to see his power manifest in his people. That's what revival does. So do you want that? Do you, do you want to hear what God has to say? Or is it just kind of, like, well, that'd be nice. Maybe, maybe one day uh, when, I'm, when I'm ready for it. Or, or are you hungry? Like, do you approach God's word like this? Like thirsty, realizing that, that it's literally where you get life. That, that there's something that in your soul that gets met. There's a, there's a thirst, there's a deep thirst and hunger in your soul that only gets met by the word of God because he's the only one that gives you life. Now here's the thing, church. Reach Montreal, lately some of you have become so hungry for God's word and it's amazing and I'm so thankful for it. You're, you're just growing. You have a crazy appetite for the word of God, but some of us have not. Some of us don't have an appetite for God's word and often it's because we're just too busy nibbling and snacking on other words, on the sermons of our culture. So ironic that our social media stuff is called feeds. We just sit there and just nibble, nibble, nibble. We get other stuff that, that shapes us, other things that tell us what our identity is wrapped up in, other things that tell us what our life is worth giving to. Just feed us, feed us, snacking. We're not in the word of God and we're not hungry for the word of God because we're settling. And if you're not nourished day and night by the word of God, you will fill up on junk. You'll fill up on junk food. You'll ruin your appetite for God's word because you're just filling up on nonsense, filling up on junk, filling up on things that are just false promises that fall short of what actually gives us life. Because listen, there's always words fighting to define you. You gotta understand that. Words define you. That's what they do. Someone's words are fighting to teach you, to shape you. It's what words do. And if the words of God, the word of God is not being internalized, it's not being feasted on to remind you of who God is and who you are, someone else's words will. And church, some of you are shaped by other people's words far more than you are by the word of God. You're shaped by the words of our culture. You're shaped by whatever celebrity or public figure you think is awesome. And the word of God is not shaping you. It's not. So let me ask you, whose words actually matter the most to you? Honestly, don't just give the Christian answer. Well, God's word. No, no, like look at your week, your real week, your actual week. Whose words shaped you the most? Whose opinions shaped you the most? Whose values and perspectives shaped you, formed you, told you what's correct and what's not? What words inspired you this week? Who have you given the power to tell you who you are? Who have you given the right who have you made primary in how they shape you with your words? And if we're honest about that, there's all sorts of words that are fighting to shape us today. All sorts of things that are fighting to tell us how we should live and why we should live that way. 
And if we continue to just kind of nibble on that stuff, we won't feast. We won't be thirsty. And notice their response to the word. Like, I just love it. This is the proper response to the word of God, church. They just go, amen, amen, which just mean, yes, yes, I agree, definitely. And then notice they lift their hands up in celebration and they bow their heads. And later on in, in chapter nine, we see that they weep. They're, they're weeping. They're worshiping and they're confessing. The proper response to God's word is always both confession and worship. Confession and celebration. True worship of God, church, is repentance that leads to joy. Repentance and mourning of our own brokenness that leads to joy and celebration of God's renewal of us, his acceptance of us, his love of us, his grace towards us. Our core problem is not that we do bad things and God needs to fix our behaviors. It's that you and I settle for good things. And until we turn away from good things and turn away from settling and turn to the ultimate thing, we will not confess, we will not worship, we will not experience life. We won't. C.S. Lewis made this point. We're, we're, he said, we're half-hearted creatures. We're far too easily pleased. That's your problem. That's my problem. I'm way too easily pleased just to sit, put my feet up, enjoy my life and settle. The story of the Bible is that all these non-gods, they over-promise and they under-deliver. And if we just think that those non-gods are gonna just do what, what we, they, they can to give us life, we're just gonna sit, we're gonna put our proverbial feet up and then we're gonna do nothing of importance. Far too easily, easily please. We settle way too easily. We're so content with the status quo. And when we talk about like sins, like, like listen, like gluttony, materialism, greed, pro, promiscuity, those are, those are wrong not because they're just wrong. They're wrong because they ascribe more value to food, possessions, money, and sex than God does, right? That they just ascribe more value. That they overpromise and they underdeliver. We take good things, they're good, and then we make them ultimate things. We make them supreme. We make them primary and they're not. They were never meant to be. And we see the people's response to the word of God is first of all, brokenness in themselves an understanding of confession, an understanding of mourning their own state apart from God. Looking at their life, looking at their day, looking at this, just going, man, man I'm so lazy. I'm so, I'm so broken. I'm so twisted. Like the things that I think, the things that I do, oh man, I need God. And then when, when that happens, I mourn my own state without God. I turn to him and I worship him and I make him ultimate. I make him supreme. Church, that's what the word of God does. That's what the word of God does to us and in us and through us. In the book of Acts, we see the exact same thing. In Acts 2, again, Peter, full of the Holy Spirit, preaches this wicked sermon, right? Thousands of people come to Jesus in a day, right? And notice what the people's response is in Acts 2. It says that they were, they heard the gospel, okay? So they heard the word of God, and then what? They were cut to the heart. In the Greek, it's actually more, it's kind of raw. It's, it's more violent than that. It's that they were greatly disturbed. They were greatly troubled, not just comforted and just like, here's a warm blanket for your soul, Scooter. This is nice, the word of God. But it actually disturbs them. Like that they're, they're troubled by it. They're troubled by the word of God and it leads them to repentance and they come and they confess Christ and they're baptized and thousands meet Jesus that day. And the sermon of our culture is exactly the opposite. Don't stress. God, just be happy. Be happy. It's about you, Scooter. Just be cute. Live a cute life. Right, just block out negativity. 
Uh, and uh, even better, cut out toxic people, right? Just use entertainment, an unending supply of pleasure to distract you from acknowledging any brokenness, any suffering, any evil, especially on the other part of the world where that's really bad over there. And don't be grieved by your own sin or your own brokenness. Why? Well, because it's about you. Don't be broken by your own laziness, your own selfishness, your own greed. Don't be broken about any of that. Just, just cut it out. Just, just be positive. Be more positive. Block out negativity. That's the sermon of our culture. The sermon of the gospel and the word of God is completely the opposite. It cuts us to the heart. It breaks us down and then it builds us up. It shows us that we can't live life fully alive until we actually make God and his word primary. And this is what sets the church apart. So brothers and sisters, are you cut to the heart by the word of God? I mean, are you greatly disturbed by your own state and your own condition? Because if not, your heart needs to be revived. You need renewal. You need your heart to become fully alive because of the word of God. And this is what sets the church apart in any generation, in any culture, in, in any historical time period. It's a pursuit of purity and holiness because we're set apart, right? No, no, not as moralistic jerks, okay? That's, that's the thing. It's just like moralistic jerks for Jesus, right? oh, condemning the world. That's not even our job. Like, read, go read 1 Corinthians 5 this week and look at what Paul says about the church having a fetish with other people's sins, Right, church, let's never be the church that has a fetish with the world's sins because it's not even our job. But instead, let's actually be the people who live for something higher than just like a nice house and a cute life and entertainment and nonsense. That's what sets us apart. That's what the church is always set apart for and by. First Peter 1, listen to what he says about the people of God. You must live as God's obedient children. I don't want to be a child. I'm the master of my own destiny. Okay, pal. Don't slip back into your old ways of living to satisfy your own desires. Don't live for your desires. You didn't know any better back then before you experienced this, but now you must be holy in everything you do. Just as God who chose you is holy. For the scriptures say you must be holy because I am holy. Now, right away, we usually slip into moralism when we think about holiness and then we become self-righteous and just become I don't know how being a jerk for Jesus is supposed to be helpful, but this is what we end up kind of floating into. But that's not what holiness is. Holiness is a communal identity that confronts culture with an alternative way of living. It shows them something better, not something grumpier or worse, something better. It's a new identity that happens. We're made holy. We don't go and behave holy. We're made holy. Right? And then that leads to a distinction of our activities and what we engage in and what we disengage from and, and going against and working against some of the cultural norms. To be a holy people is to be a different kind of people. We're just different. Right? We're bound together by our worship of a different God and a rejection of non-gods that are worshipped by our culture at large. That's what holiness does. And, and honestly, properly understood, holiness is, is social distinction. And it's, it's an engaged non-conformity. It's a, it's a moral and ethical resistance. It's an alternative vision and view of how to live. That's what holiness is. So although holiness isn't moral and ethical perfection, it does involve moral and ethical perfection. It's just not yours. It's just not ours. It's Christ's. So our holiness isn't moral perfection because we'll never reach that, but it is moral distinction. 
It does mean that we think and we speak and we value and, and, and we live differently than those who don't know this God. So it includes our morals, but it's so much more than that. Holiness is a holistic, it's a whole life transformation. You with me? That we're made holy, we're made different. Our entire life is different. And Jesus constantly calls his disciples to this alternative way of life. Sets us apart by the word of God. It's the word of God that sets us apart and gives us a a completely alternative ethical vision for how we actually experience life. And the Sermon on the Mount, I mean, I encourage you to read it again this week, but go to the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus unpacks all of the implications of that, right? All of the kind of kingdom ethic and the vision for this countercultural people that are formed by the gospel to go and live a countercultural life. In Matthew 6, 8, he just finishes in the Sermon on the Mount. He's like, don't be like them. That's literally the Sermon on the Mount. You can just get up and be like, stop being like everyone else. But it's not by our behavior. It's not by mustering that up. It's not by trying harder. It's about being different because of the God that we worship. His word shapes us. His word changes us. His word gives us different appetites and desires and then overflows and changes how we live, how we love, how we serve. Martin Lloyd-Jones again, one more time says, the glory of the gospel is that when the church is absolutely different from the world, listen to that. When the church is absolutely different from the world, she invariably attracts it. It should never be our ambition to be as much like everybody else as we can. Some of you need to hear that. Like that, that's what you need to repent of this morning. But rather to be as a different, as different from everybody else who is not a Christian as we possibly can. Some of you still think that adding Jesus onto your already kind of cool, fashionable, clever self-image is what Christianity is. And it's the exact opposite. Because today, I'll tell you, holiness looks a lot like resisting the distraction and the busyness and the preoccupation with entertainment of our culture. Because when we just follow that, we end up inoculated by comfort. We end up paralyzed and we do nothing, nothing good, nothing worth doing. We just kind of settle for entertainment and safety and the status quo. Leonard Ravenhill, another amazing revivalist preacher says that entertainment is the devil's substitute for joy. And some of us are just so entertained. We're just living to be entertained. Church, God's word fills us with more, gives us more. It sets us apart because he is more. He becomes primary. That's the second thing. That's the second thing that leads to revival. And third and finally, third trait that we see in revival is a disruptive, unnatural love for others. Just a a disruptive love for others that we can't really explain, just kind of like wells up in us and flows out of us. In 1 John 4, we see this. After John unpacks kind of what the gospel does to change our loves, he says this and. Uh, chapter four, verse seven, beloved, you who are the loved ones, he says, let us love one another for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God himself is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest. It showed up that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Now, listen, in our culture, if there's one thing we've done, we've emptied love of all meaning, right? So we say things like, love is love. Okay, that's helpful. Uh, Love is pain. Love is someone completing you. 
Love is something that happens to you. Just, you just wait around until you fall in love, right? Or love is agreement with anything that makes someone else happy. That's what love looks like. I just, I love you, so I'm just gonna agree with anything that you wanna do. And it's so unhelpful because love is not love. There's lots of different types of love and there's a very specific love that we see unpacked here. Jesus loves differently. He just does, right? And there's all sorts of different types of love. If I told you that I love pizza and hip hop and my wife the same way, you should be concerned. I should love all three of those things very differently. And we've also confused love with liking someone or feeling like liking someone, right? So, well, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I'm not gonna love you because I don't really feel like loving you. And what ends up happening is we, we end up only showing love for people that we like or people that are exactly like us. And guess what that is? That's not love. That's called narcissism. And, and so our culture, we're just wrapped up in narcissism, calling it love, and then we're left empty and broken. That's not the kind of love that Jesus calls his church to. This kind of love, the kind of love that Jesus loves us with. Notice that John starts and says, beloved. He's reminding us, you're the loved ones. Right? So he's saying the kind of love that Jesus calls us to isn't based on how lovable someone is, but it's based on how loved we are. <laughs> that's the beauty. That's the beautiful part about this love. That, that, that's what a spiritually alive life looks like, right? Like being loved, knowing that we're loved, that we're, we're completely just overwhelmed by God's grace and mercy and love, that we're fully accepted and redeemed despite us, not because of us. That's what a spiritually alive life looks like. A spiritually alive life, being fully revived in the gospel means that we love the right things in the right order and in the right way, right? Sin, all sin does is it kind of gets there, runs amok and it disorders our love. We overvalue the wrong things. We love the wrong things. We give ourselves to the wrong things. Then we end up broken. And this kind of love is a love that starts with being loved, fully loved, no prerequisites, just coming and being loved by the God who can't help but love and pour out his love. And in John 13, Jesus tells his disciples this on the, the eve of his crucifixion, right? We've spent some time in this passage over the last year, but he says, love one another. And if you stop there, that would be good because you'd be like, okay, then I can feel love with whatever kind of one another. Because I, I mean, that person I don't really like at church or that person that hurt me once, he's like, well, I don't, I don't need to love them. But then he says, love one another just as I have loved you. And it's like, uh-oh, <laughs> you're also to love one another just like I have. And all people will know that you're my disciples with the way that you love one another. Now imagine we actually lived this. Jesus loves by serving. Jesus loves by washing their feet that night, including his enemies. And then he goes and he says, love like this. So church, love isn't a feeling. If you're sitting around waiting to feel like loving your neighbor, it's never gonna happen and you'll do nothing. Love is a choice. It's a choice to move towards someone in a self-giving act of service. That's what love is. And that's what agape love means in the Greek. That, that, that this love is an active self-giving emptying of me and it comes at someone else and there's no strings attached to it. No preconditions. And it acts. Notice that. In Romans 5, 8, you see God demonstrates his love. He doesn't just like feel it, right? That, would, that wouldn't be helpful, Right? God was just out there, oh, God feels a lot of love for you, but he does nothing. No, no, he demonstrates his love. And then he does it like this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died. That's the kind of love. That's this love. That's the love of the gospel. And what it means for us, it means that, that when that starts to happen, church, the people that you don't care about, you start to care about. <laughs> 
the, the people that you don't think about, you don't even consider them, you start to think about them. The people that you really don't have a reason to care for, you start to care about them. You start to think about them. You start to pray for them. You start to spend time with them. The people that you really aren't interested in being around, you start to get around them. You give more of yourself. You give more of your time. You give more of your energy away. And then God's love promises to fill us back up. And often we've just thought about the opposite of love being hate. So you feel like you're off the hook because you're not sitting there being like, oh, I hate those people. The opposite of love is not hate, church. It's indifference. The opposite of love is doing nothing. The opposite of love is apathy. The opposite of love is meh, right? Apathy and, and meh just shackles us to ourself where, where love and empathy binds us to other people, other people who need, other people who are broken, other people who are without it's so easy to be indifferent. It's so easy to be apathetic. It doesn't require anything of you. Nothing at all. It's like a do not disturb sign that we put out to anyone that would be toxic. Anyone would come in and just be toxic or negative. And it puts up a do not disturb sign to any opportunities, to all opportunities to serve and love other people. One author says it's an emotional Saturday afternoon nap. I'm just running around with like, yeah, but I, I don't hate them. Yeah, but you're doing nothing. What does this look like for us? Well, as a church, Reach Montreal, what if we weren't known for our church services, our Sunday things, our facility, as if that would ever happen, right? If you know where we're at. Our worship sets and how organized our 90-minute thing is, our ministries and programs, or our preaching. What if we weren't known for any of that? but we were known, we were marked by a disruptive, unnatural love for everyone, anyone. Like, like marked by a hunger for God's word, marked by, by, by just being about Jesus, like always and only about Jesus. Like you guys are always talking about Jesus. Like I know, yeah, it's because he's amazing. Like what if we were marked by that? Marked by confession and walking with a limp and not just pretending that you're awesome, right? Like, like confessing sin and repenting and dragging stuff out of the dark into the light. What if we're known for that? What if we're known for loving our neighbors? What if we're known for caring for orphans and widows and actually doing that? A.W. Tozer, another amazing preacher during revival said, what has the church gained if it's popular, but there's no conviction, no repentance, and no power? The answer the church has gained nothing. That's the answer. If there's anything that the enemy wants for you and our church right now is to continue to hide and settle and do nothing. Not think and live for Jesus. Not have a thirst and a hunger for God's word. Not live with this just disruptive, supernatural love for other people. But that's what Jesus is calling us to. And everyone's life is being disrupted right now. And the church is gonna have an opportunity coming out the other end of this disruption, this disruption to do this, to point to Jesus and make much of him to bring people's eyes into God's word so that their heart would be full of God's word and to go out and love everyone that we meet with a love that is just so disruptive and unnatural. So how can we respond to this this morning? How can we? Well, we can't manufacture it, right? 
me screaming at you like this through the, the screen is not going to manufacture or muster up revival. There's no 12-step program for revival. But here's what we can do. We can want it. Do you want this? Like, like we can desire it. We can pray it. We can pray for it. And then we can organize our life so that we live towards it. What else can we do? Well, we can submit everything to Jesus right now. We can surrender it all. We can pick up the phone today and call a brother or sister and confess sin. Things that we've been hiding, things that we've been ignoring, things that we've been pretending is okay and we're not. We can do that today. We can surrender. We can confess. We can worship. We can repent today. That's what we can do. We can invite the spirit of God to invade our life, to invade our life personally and to completely fill his church. And like Acts 17 says, turn the world upside down because the church is just like, what? This is amazing. Like, look at the church. Turns the world upside down. But let me ask, do you even want this? Do you even want it? Do you want it for you? Do you want renewal for, for you? Do you want revival for you? Because what's gonna mean is you're gonna turn away from stuff that you like right now. It means that you're gonna be called away from stuff that you really just, you just really love right now. You're gonna be called to confess sin and, and turn away and repent. You're gonna be called to actually be really uncomfortable and think about all of your plans and all of your money and all of your stuff and all of your job opportunities, all of that completely differently. That's what this means for you. Do you want this for your family? Do you want this for your neighborhood? Do you want this for our city? Do you want this for our island? Do you want this for our province? Do you want this for our nation? Because it starts with you. It starts with you. It starts with me. And it means that we stop settling. So, some of us haven't asked God for anything of substance and that's why he hasn't done it. Like, like I can just plead with you, start asking God for stuff that matters. Like, like, we haven't prayed for anything other than our future and our finances and our family and our job. What if we started to pray bigger than that and then God just decided to throw all of that stuff in? Like, like what if we actually started to pray for the Spirit of God to be poured out on the province of Quebec so that we hear about thousands of people repenting and confessing sin and coming and just claiming and worshiping and proclaiming Christ's name? What if that happened? What if we stopped being so content so easily pleased with the status quo and the ordinary and we started asking God for more, that's what revival would look like. If any of you have heard about the quiet revolution that happened in Quebec throughout the 1960s, if you didn't, you could Google it, read about it. But the slogan was, a t it's, a it's, it's the time for a change, the quiet revolution. It was followed by the Quebec Liberal Party's reforms and a massive decrease in church involvement and influence in public affairs and thousands of Quebecers left the church never to go back. Reach Montreal, what if, what if it's time for a new revolution? A new one that starts really quiet. A new revolution that starts with you on your knees and me on my knees, praying and, and confessing and celebrating and worship. What if, what if it starts here? What if a new revolution starts with us? What if we're standing at the beginning of a new revival in the pages of history? How would we know? How would we know if we don't want it? How would we know if we don't pray for it? How would we know if we don't live in line with it? 
How would we know if we're standing at that right at the beginning of thousands of Quebecers coming to know Jesus? Are we even praying for it? I'm gonna leave you with these words. Martin Lloyd-Jones says that every revival is a repeat of Pentecost. Don't get tied up with what that means and what it doesn't mean. Shed your Pentecostal baggage for a second. When did you last hear anyone praying for revival? Praying that God might open the windows of heaven and pour out his spirit. When did you last pray for that yourself? I suggest seriously that we are neglecting this almost entirely. He wrote this a long time ago. He's still right. We are guilty of forgetting the authority of the Holy Spirit. When God sends revival, he can do more in a single day than in 50 years of all of our organization. Church, the presence and power of God's spirit in Christ's church and in God's people is God's way of showing us that he wasn't done at the cross. That yes, the work of salvation was finished. It is finished. Amen. But the work of redemption was just getting started. How would we know if we are sitting at the beginning of a brand new revolution here in our very city, in our province, in our nation, if we don't pray for it? Let's pray for it now. Mighty God, we ask that you would pour your spirit out into your church, that we as a people would be so full of your spirit, that we would represent you well, that we would be recognized not by silliness, but by power, but by you, Jesus, your name being supreme and primary, by our commitment and our love and our thirst and our hunger for your word, oh God, and for our just crazy disruptive love for others, that it would just be so evident that we're just so different. Not because we are better than anyone, but Lord, because you're better than anything. I pray that for us, for our church, but Lord, we know it takes the church. We know that every church in Quebec must wake up to this. We ask that you would wake us up. We ask that we would lead, that we would pray, that we would move towards this and that you would bring about revival in our city, that we would see so many people just come and know you, come and confess you, come and love you, come and live for you and worship you, Jesus. And I pray that you start right here. I pray that you start in us. I pray that you start in me. I pray that today, right now, that we wouldn't just move on. I pray that you would just allow us to stop, to be still and know that you are God. I pray for all of us as we turn this off, as we go our separate ways, that you would bind us together that you would allow us to come and you, we would drop to our knees, that we would confess, that we would just want more of you, that you would give us a thirst and a hunger for your word, that we would confess sin and we would move towards you with celebration and joy and worship. I pray all of that for us today and forever. And I pray that you would do it for your fame and for your glory. And in the only name that matters or ever will, in Jesus' name.